Let's pray together. Our great God, as we come to the time where we sit under your, your preached word, God, I, I do pray that you would give our pastor strength, give him, um, sustain his voice, sustain his health, Lord, we pray that you would um, help him to boldly proclaim your word today, God, that we would hear your word, that we would apply it in our lives, God, that you would use it to save the lost among us. God, we pray that you would help us, Father, to focus on your word, help us to cast the cares of the world aside, Lord, that we would come into your presence and that we would hear your word. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Will you turn with me once again in God's Word to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. This morning, we'll be looking at one of the most famous miracles that our Lord Jesus has done, the feeding of 5,000. In fact, this miracle is unique in this respect. It is the only miracle that Jesus did which is recorded by all four gospel writers. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all have recorded one version or another of this miracle. That's significant. It probably ought to make our ears perk up and pay even, we ought to always pay attention to God's Word, right? But it ought to make us pay particular attention to what is the significance of this miracle? Why is it here? And we, we of course, with all of the miracles, we see a picture of 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 Jesus' divine power and authority. We have been marveling as we've worked through the Gospel of Mark so far, again and again and again, we've marveled at the words and the works of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we're told that the crowds were often astonished by his words and his works. Some of his enemies took offense at his words and works. But all of those instances pointed us to one reality, that reality which Mark declared in the very first verse of his gospel that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. Mark is eager for us to know, for us to believe, for us to grasp, for us to embrace, and to count upon the fact that he is the Son of God, that he is divine. Now, We come to the feeding of the 5,000 on the heels of a couple of very important events that that Mark has has organized this way to help, in our minds, juxtapose these things and compare them. So on the one hand, the beginning of Mark chapter 6, we found Jesus going to his hometown. We see him going to the very place where he grew up, and what does he discover there? What is he confronted with there? Unbelief. Unbelief even among his family, among the people that he grew up with, among his neighbors. And they all said things like, well, isn't this the carpenter's son? They rejected his words and works. They, they refused to see his divinity. Well, then he sent out his 12 disciples in pairs of two to go and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. And he told them that along the way, they're going to face unbelief. And that when they encounter unbelief, especially when it is a stubborn unbelief that will not not hear the word of God, 
they were to shake off their feet, shake the dust off their feet as a testimony to that house or to that place that God was not going to be with them. And then last week, we saw yet another form of unbelief, this one in the form of Herod's unbelief. And I called the sermon last week, Powerful Unbelief. What do we, how do we think about the fact that sometimes, oftentimes, unbelief takes root at the highest reaches of human authority, the highest reaches of human government? Well, what do we think about this, or how should we think about Jesus feeding the 5,000 in light of those things? Here's the overall context. It's a series of unbelief among his countrymen in his hometown, among those to whom Jesus sent the apostles to declare the gospel of the kingdom, among the highest reaches of civil authority, even with Herod the Tetrarch. And now we're going to be confronted with the kind of unbelief even among his disciples. Even among his disciples. Now, one of the key messages, one of the key points of this miracle event is for us to, to, to learn a lesson about the peril, the folly of unbelief with respect to God's provision. Is God willing and able to provide for his people? And what the scriptures put forth to us in this miracle is a kind of rebuke. It's an admonishment for us when we are unbelieving about the nature and the, the efficacy of God's provision for us. In fact, to kind of understand that, that text and this event from that perspective, uh, I would commend to you a sermon that Pastor Jarrett Downs preached here been over five years ago now. I looked this up. I was amazed. It's been this long. June 17th of 2018, he preached a sermon from the parallel passage in Luke chapter 9 entitled, Our All-Sufficient Provider. It's a wonderful sermon to unpack this, this folly of unbelief with respect to God's provision for us. But in Mark's gospel, and, and unique to Mark's gospel, all four gospel writers contain this event. But Mark, and this is uncharacteristic, Mark's version is longer with respect to this particular miracle. And again, when we see patterns disrupted, normally the pattern is Mark gives us a briefer version of an event. And here, the pattern's interrupted. Mark actually gives us a longer version, a more extensive version of that event. And so what do we make of that? Being that his is the largest, I think Mark intends an even bigger theological point. It is absolutely true that the, the miracle teaches to us the folly of being unbelieving, and, and especially being unbelieving with respect to God's provision for us. But I think that's only one aspect of what Mark brings forth for us. The miracle of feeding 5,000 men in the wilderness uniquely makes the case here that Jesus is divine. In fact, I think his divinity shows forth for us in four different ways, and that's how I'm going to un unpack the text for us. Um, beginning in verse 30, I'll read down to 44 in just a few moments. The sermon title is Bread of Life in the Wilderness. Bread of Life in the Wilderness. And here, we're going to find this. The feeding of the 5,000 
demonstrates to us that Jesus is the divine Son of God. I mean, that's, that's been Mark's focus from the beginning, right? And specifically, in this text, we see the divine Son in four ways. These will be our four headings for the sermon. He is a compassionate shepherd. He is the compassionate shepherd of Israel. Secondly, he is a miraculous provider. He is a miraculous provider. Thirdly, he is covenant-keeping Yahweh. Jesus is covenant-keeping Yahweh. And fourthly, Jesus is divine creator. So if you walk away and remember nothing else, remember this, that through this miracle, we see Jesus as the Son of God in these four ways, a compassionate shepherd, miraculous provider, covenant-keeping Yahweh, and divine creator. He is truly God, truly man. Let's read together the text. I'll begin in verse 30 and follow along with me as I read aloud down to verse 44, the bread of life in the wilderness. And saints, I think that is our task today. Is, is to behold the glory of our God in the person of the Son. To behold our Redeemer, our Messiah, our Savior, our Lord, who is nothing other than truly God, who's assumed to himself human flesh. Here is the word of God. <clears throat> the apostles returned to Jesus and told him, all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore... He saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Notice in the first place, brothers and sisters, as we behold our God in the person of the Son, notice first of all 
that Jesus is offered to us as a compassionate shepherd. He is offered to us, he's offered to you this morning as a compassionate shepherd. Look back at verse 34. Here's the scene. The the apostles had, had returned to Jesus from ministering the word of God, and, and apparently while they were gone, and sometime coincident to that event, they learn about the death of John the Baptist. That's what we looked at last week. And so the, the emotional blow was heavy upon them, and upon Jesus as well, according to his humanity. John was a great man, and to lose him, and to lose him in such circumstances was tragic. And in a sense, they're, they're reeling from this. And so Jesus wisely says, let's go away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. I mean, the crowds were such that the text tells us they hadn't even had an opportunity to eat. Now, you probably recall, if not, I'll remind you now, that, that John Mark was not an eyewitness to these events. He's writing the gospel, but he's not an eyewitness to this. But the Apostle Peter was perhaps his primary source in the writing of this gospel. So certainly the the memories that Peter would have had are kind of coming and flooding back through Mark's pen here. And and, and you just kind of hear Peter as an older man telling the story. We hadn't even had a time to get something to eat. We were were emotionally uh, just, just grieved over the loss of John the Baptist. We had gone out for the very first time on our own, two by two, and proclaiming the gospel, which was an amazing privilege. We got to see men come to faith in Christ. We got to see demons cast out. We got to see men healed of diseases, but we were exhausted. And then Jesus tells us, let's go to a a desolate place to rest. And y'all, we were so looking forward to that. We were eager for such a rest. We were eager to get back and debrief and and sit with our our teacher, our master, our Lord, and discuss the things that we had learned, the things that we had taught. But the crowd was so great, they they mobbed us, even as we were getting ready to go on the boat. And you know what they did? They followed us along the shore, and they beat us to the desolate place to which we were going. We just couldn't escape. But you know what happened when Jesus got off the boat? He didn't rebuke the crowd. He didn't say, we're done for today. He didn't didn't call in sick for the rest of the day. No, because the God that we serve came and clothed himself in humble human flesh, and he had compassion on the people, on the crowd, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, brothers and sisters, this is no human compassion or not merely human compassion that we are observing here. Mark sets before us the Son of God, and strikingly in this miracle account, Jesus is set before, us, set before us as the great shepherd of Israel. In fact, there are echoes. A number of times when, we read the, when you read through the New Testament, you will find the authors of the New Testament quoting directly passages from the Old Testament. Sometimes you will find them paraphrasing texts from the Old Testament. Sometimes, Paul, for example, will will actually blend various passages together from the Old Testament and make a theological point. Other times, what we find in the the New Testament are allusions, not allusion with an I, but allusions with an A, 
it, it's, a, it's an indirect reference to an Old Testament text or event. And I think we have one here, for example, from Zechariah chapter 10. Listen to the prophet Zechariah in chapter 10. For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners seeing lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders, for the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. You see, the prophet Zechariah is declaring that God himself is the shepherd of Israel that he cares for his sheep, and that he is angry that the shepherds that he placed over his sheep have neglected their charge, that they have despised the word and the ordinances of God, and they have left the sheep to themselves. And here Jesus gets off the boat, and he observes just such a scene, that here is this mass of his kinsmen according to the flesh who have been left with derelict shepherds. They've had teachers and shepherds over them who've neglected their charge, and Jesus has compassion on them. This is not a mere human compassion. This is the compassion of God himself. And and we're told here that Jesus stayed, and he began to teach them many things. What do you suppose Jesus taught them? We don't have to speculate. We don't have to speculate. Jesus taught them over and over and over again. He taught the crowds the gospel of the kingdom. In fact, Luke makes it explicit in Luke chapter 9. Luke tells us exactly what Jesus taught. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. So Jesus did what he always did. He taught the gospel of the kingdom. He declared to them how their sins could be forgiven. He declared to them how they could be reconciled to God. He declared to them how they could be made clean and righteous and whole before the Lord. Surely, the Lord's command here to seat the men in groups of fifties and hundreds is an echo. Here's another illusion. What does that remind you of when you you see the Lord Jesus, when you hear him make this command to have the men sit in groups on the green grass and to sit down in groups by hundreds and by fifties? Well, this is what Moses did. On the advice of his father-in-law Jethro, he divided the people by fifties and hundreds. And surely the Lord's command here to seat them in such a way is an echo of Jethro's advice to Moses. But it's also, there's another echo, and particularly the statement about having them sit down in the green grass, our minds immediately go to Psalm 23. Immediately go to Psalm 23. There, David testifies that Yahweh himself is the great shepherd. And he is a great shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Then later in the psalm, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Jesus is presented to us here as the shepherd of Israel. Now, 
I'm not making the claim to you that the disciples there in that moment immediately recognized all of them. They didn't. In fact, I know that they didn't because later on in this same chapter, down in verse 51, Jesus got into the boat with the disciples and the wind ceased and they were utterly astonished or astounded for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hard. Autobiographically, Peter says about himself and the other apostles that in the moment, they didn't understand all of it. But after the outpouring of the Spirit of God, according to the Lord Jesus' promise to them, the Spirit had led them into all truth. And now, in retrospect, they see this is what was being revealed to us that day. We just didn't see it. Jesus is the great shepherd of Israel. He is divine. He is, he is the holy God. And the question immediately arises to us, do you know this compassionate shepherd? Do you know him? But by his grace, have your eyes been opened to see him for who he really is, the great shepherd of Israel? Have you experienced personally the kindness, the tenderness, the compassion by which he forgives your sin and then leads you step by step by step through green pastures and into righteousness. And then a further question, has that compassion that you've received, has that produced a compassion in you? See, what was the, the initial response of the disciples? <laughs> Send them away. Let them go find them, themselves something to eat. Let the crowd sort this out for themselves. And what was Jesus' answer? No, you feed them. You feed them. You represent me. You feed them. J.C. Ryle makes this observation. It's some probing questions. He says, let us ask ourselves as we leave the passage whether we know anything of the mind of Christ. Are we like him, tenderly concerned about the souls of the unconverted? Do we, like him, feel deep compassion for all who are yet as sheep without a shepherd? Do we? care about the impenitent and godly near our own doors? Do we care about the heathen, the Jew, the Muslim, and the Roman Catholic in foreign lands? Do we use every means and give our money willingly to spread the gospel in the world? These are serious questions and demand a serious reply. The man who cares nothing for the souls of other people is not like Jesus Christ it may well be doubted whether he has converted himself and knows the value of his own soul. The gospel of Jesus Christ, this great shepherd of the sheep, not only does he call us to himself, not only does he demonstrate a compassion to, toward us in calling us to himself, in leading us into the paths of righteousness, but he also produces a compassion in us whereby we reflect that and implement that to our neighbors. Our Lord Jesus taught men and women, he taught boys and girls how to be reconciled to God, how to have their sins forgiven them, how to be made clean and whole. Behold, saints, your Lord Jesus Christ as the great shepherd of Israel. He is a divine shepherd, a holy shepherd. 
But we learn much more about him in this miracle. Not only do we see him as the divine shepherd of Israel, but we also see him as a miraculous provider. We see him as a miraculous provider. The lessons further that it is a perilous thing in the sight of God to doubt his provision. Mark wants us to see a connection between this event and another key event in the life of Israel. There are echoes throughout this text of the life of Israel of ancient times. Mark alone tells us that these events took place in a desolate place. In fact, Mark says this twice. He says, Jesus has come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. And then in verse 35, and when it grew late, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. It means it's deserted. It is wilderness-like. There was green grass there, so it was not a complete wilderness, but it was wilderness-like. His, he is intentional to cause, Mark is intentional to cause us as his hearers, as his readers, our, for our minds to go immediately back to what, to what event in the life of Israel? To the Exodus. To the time of wandering in the wilderness. We were there, we had 12 tribes who grumbled against God that there was nothing to eat. Here we have 12 disciples who complained to Jesus, we don't have enough to eat. Do you hear the echo? Do you hear the echo? Turn with me to the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers. <clears throat> All the way back near the beginning of the Old Testament Scriptures. Numbers chapter 11. Here is an event that takes place immediately following the very first Passover meal. The very first Passover meal. In fact, John tells us, remember, the feeding of the 5,000 is recorded in all four Gospels, and each of the Gospel writers give us a little bit different nugget. John tells us that this 5, 000, the feeding of 5,000 takes place at the same time as Passover. It's at the same time of the year as Passover. So again, John's making a, a theological connection, and we need to see that as well. Look at Numbers chapter 11, beginning in verse 18. The Lord through Moses said, Say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out at your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him, saying, Why did we come out of Egypt? But Moses said, The people among whom I am, I am number 600,000 on foot, and you have said, I will give them meat that they may eat a whole month. Do you hear the echo? The apostles' objection was almost word for word the objection of Moses, wasn't it? Moses said, I've got 600,000 men on foot, and you want me to feed them? The disciples said, 
there are too many men here. This is a desolate place. There's nothing to eat. Send them into the villages and let them fend for themselves. Moses asked in verse 22, shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them? The disciples asked, shall we go and spend 200 denarii, which was two-thirds of a year wages for an average worker? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. So that's the question, isn't it? Is the Lord's hand shortened? In other words, is God capable of doing this? So see, Mark is very intentionally bringing the very same set of circumstances, or similar set of circumstances, but the same question to the surface. Not is Jesus, a great human teacher, able to do these things, but is, is Jesus, the divine Son of God, able to do this? That's the question. Still there in Numbers 11... Skip down to verse 31. Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side around the camp and about two cubits above the ground. And the people rose all that day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. Those who gathered least gathered ten homers and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp, while the meat was yet between their teeth. Before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people. And the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore, the name of that place was called Kibroth Hatavah, because there they buried the people who had the craving. From Kibrioth Hatavah, the people journeyed to Hazaroth, and they remained at Hazaroth. Now notice something. Here we have, we're intentionally given the echoes of this Old Testament event. The people complaining, they're grumbling against God. They're faithless. God asked the question, is my hand able to do this or not? Moses objected. We've got 600,000 men. Should I slaughter all the flocks in order to feed them? The disciples are doing the very same kind of thing. Now, here's the difference, though. Here's the great difference. The story doesn't end in the same way, does it? God was angry with the people in Israel in the wilderness because of their unbelief. And here we see the divine compassion and the divine provision of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is truly God. He is truly divine. And he dealt with them with compassion, with tenderness, with kindness. Mark Twain, one of those great theologians throughout history, said, history never repeats itself, but it does often rhyme. It does often rhyme. And I wonder, as the disciples contemplated these events, and, and again, at the moment, they didn't understand all of this, but later on, as they looked back and they meditated upon these events, and they see that history did, in fact, rhyme. There were important lessons for them to learn. What must have been those, the thoughts of those disciples when they recognized this event was, in fact, an historical rhyme? 
What, what, would, what would their thoughts have been when, when they reflected on their own time in this wilderness, in this desolate, desolate place, and realized their unbelief was like unto that unbelief of the Israelites? How must they have thought about their own actions and, their, and their, themselves on that? I already pointed out to you that Peter would recall through the, the pen of Mark that when the disciples got into the boat, they did not yet understand these things. Mark is very concerned that we know that Jesus was not merely a healer. He was not merely a teacher, not merely a prophet, but he is very God of very God. Jesus was present in the wilderness. Do you know that? Sometimes there are, there are schools of theology and schools of doctrine that sort of put a wedge between the Old Testament and the New, as if they're two different revelations of God. As if Jesus didn't even exist until the New Testament. The Lord Jesus, as God, was present in the wilderness. And Mark is concerned for us to know that. He was present in the wilderness. He is the one who fed his people then. He is the one who fed 5,000 people in this desolate place in Palestine. He is the Lord who provides for his church today. It is the same Lord, the same God who was in the wilderness, who was beside the Sea of Galilee in a desolate place, and who is with us, saints, right this very moment. And when we doubt this, it is to our both our shame and to our peril. When we doubt that our Lord Jesus is a miraculous provider. When we doubt that as a church, when we doubt that in our households, when we doubt that as individual men and women, that God is not able or unwilling to provide for us. And now, just as it was then, his power and his provision is not dependent upon our faith. This is the question that the Lord asked to Moses. It's the question that, that, that should be posed to ourselves today. The Lord said to Moses, is the Lord's hand shortened? Is the Lord's hand shortened? In other words, is he lacking in some way? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. Now that Mark wants us to know, now what Mark wants us to know is this, what was said of God in Numbers 11, what was said about God in the wilderness, should be said of Jesus in Mark chapter 6. Everything that was true of Yahweh in the wilderness, is true of Jesus in Mark chapter 6 because Jesus is God. He is Yahweh. Jesus is the same God who provided for his people in the wilderness, and his power overcomes our unbelief. Brothers and sisters, are you doubting God's provision for you? Whether that's in physical, material ways, or spiritually, are you doubting God's provision? Are you suspicious that God may not provide what you need? Are you suspicious that God may not be able to provide what you need? Are you more like the disciples where you, you look at the five loaves and the two fish in your hands and say, this is all we have. This isn't enough. And then neglect to see that they have the one who made all things standing right in front of them. The one who is the provider of all that we need. And we must confess Brothers and sisters, our unbelief, and call it what it is. Unbelief is sin. 
that's one of the prevailing points, I think, in, in all of, of Mark's gospel here in chapter 6, as we see whether it's in his hometown or whether we see in those who reject the apostles' message as they go out two by two, or whether it's in the very banquet halls of Herod and his unbelief. In every respect, in every circumstance, whether small or great, unbelief is sin. Unbelief is sin. And what is the remedy for every sin? Faith and repentance. To believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and to turn away from that sin. Some of us need the grace of repentance in this very area. To repent of of our unbelief, of our doubting, of our refusal to acknowledge that he is both willing and able to provide for us. May we not test the Lord in these days as they did in the wilderness, saying that God is not able to do this. May we rejoice that his hand is not dependent upon us having a sufficient measure of faith in order for him to provide. His hand was not held back because of the unbelief of Moses. His hand was not held back because of the unbelief of the people. His hand was not held back because of the unbelief of the 12 disciples. And his faithfulness to provide will not be held back because of your unbelief or mine. He is able to do far more exceedingly than we can even ask or think. Jesus is God. He is, first of all, our compassionate shepherd, but he is also our miraculous provider. But we see two more aspects of his divinity. Two more more, uh, views of his divinity are on display here in this miracle. Thirdly, we see him as divine creator. We see him as divine creator. Notice that we're told here the disciples produce five fish, I mean five loaves and two fish, right? We're told that Jesus blesses those things. Look at verse 40. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing, and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. How did Jesus accomplish this? How did Jesus take the five bread, the five loaves of bread, bless that, hand it to disciples, they distribute it to groups of 50s and 100, 5,000 men, likely plus women and children, so a number of 10,000 or more, and all were satisfied. In fact, there were leftover pieces of both bread and fish to fill up 12 baskets. How, what, by what mechanism did Jesus do this? The answer is we're not told. We're not told. The emphasis is not on the, the how he did this. Sometimes we're told. Sometimes he heals a blind man and we're told that he spits on mud and he or spits on the ground, makes some mud and puts it on the eye. There's a, there's a, a means. Here we're just simply told that he hands it to his disciples, told them to distribute it. They did, and there's left over. At what point does the bread become more bread? Apparently in the text, the crowd doesn't even know that a miracle has taken place. It doesn't tell us that. 
The disciples surely were aware. This is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ simply speaking things into existence which were not. This is nothing other than an act of divine creation. Five loaves of bread in comparison to... The disciples weren't entirely wrong as they looked at this. Now, they weren't looking with eyes of faith, but they weren't entirely wrong. Five loaves of bread and two fish compared to, let's say, 10,000 souls is essentially zero. I mean, it's essentially nothing. And out of nothing, the Lord fed thousands. This is what we would call creation ex nihilo, out of nothing. The very same God who made the world and everything in it is the very same God who is now clothed in human flesh in the person of the Son of God and who stands among his people and provides for them, who creates a provision for them out of nothing. We would say out of thin air. How did he do this? He spoke it into existence. Now, Paul makes this point explicit later on when he would write to the church at Colossae. The letter we know is is the letter to the Colossians. In chapter 1, Paul is speaking about Christ, and he says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Paul's saying very plainly that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is the one who spoke into being all that is. He is creator. Why is it important for us to know this? Why is it important for us to know and to believe that Jesus is creator? Why is it important theologically that Mark is making this point by recording this miracle in just this way? Why is it important for us to know that, and for the people, for the disciples to know, that Jesus is not only a provider, not only is he a compassionate shepherd, but he is actually creator? Well, I think the answer is twofold. Number one, because it logically follows that whatever he has made, he also rules over. Whatever he has made, he also rules over. And if he is the one who has made all things, then he is also the ruler and the governor of all things, despite Herod's unbelief, despite his own hometown's unbelief, despite the unbelief that his apostles encountered just earlier today when they were preaching the gospel of the kingdom. It doesn't matter what other, how other men respond Jesus is the one who spoke everything into existence. He is the one who rules and reigns and governs all things. So it's important from from the standpoint of rule and reign to know that he is the one who made all things. But secondly, it's important eschatologically. It's important eschatologically to know that Jesus is the creator. What do I mean by that? Because he is also the divine recreator. Jesus has promised when he returns to make all things new. 
when he returns in glory, he will usher in the full consummation of his heavenly kingdom. Identifying Jesus as the creator God holds significant eschatological importance because Jesus is the one who will make the new heavens and the new earth. It is not only that he rules and reigns over all that is now, but that he will also reign over all that will be. All that will be, will be brought into creation with the new heavens and the new earth. One of the old commentators, Melanchthon Jacobus, in his commentary on this text, he says, this, this event displayed his power not only, but his power and grace in a certain direction, viz. restoring the ruins of the fall. Restoring the ruins of the fall. It hinted, therefore, of the redeeming office work and of the great results. Want or lack is a fruit of the fall. His work aims at a restoration of the original plenty and a redemption from all the fruits of the curse in his kingdom. Isn't that marvelous to meditate upon? that lack, that want. Anything, saints, as you look at your life, anything you see that you lack, that is a fruit of the fall. And in the new creation, there will be no lack. There will be no want. There will be no deprivation of any good thing. And we can count on that because Jesus is creator. And he is the one who will be the recreator. Jesus is God. He is our compassionate shepherd. He is our miraculous provider. He is the creator and sustainer of all that is and all that will be. But we see one last aspect here in this miracle, one more glimpse of the divinity of Jesus of Nazareth, and it's this. Jesus is also covenant-keeping Yahweh. Jesus is covenant-keeping Yahweh. It is not only the fact that Jesus provides for his people, but this miracle is recorded for us to demonstrate that Jesus is none other than Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, who keeps covenant with his people. And again, we have this historical rhyme that we need to, to wrestle through and delight in. This historical rhyme of God feeding his people in the wilderness. You turn with me, please, to the book of the Psalms again. Psalm 78. Psalm 78. I'd love to go through the whole psalm for the sake of, of time. Uh, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 and then 17 through 24. Psalm 78. This is a mascal of Asaph. And I think you'll recognize immediately the subject matter of the psalm. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded to our fathers, or he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, 
and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. That they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Now look down at verse 17. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? You think Mark chapter 6 has an answer to that question? Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck, verse 20, the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven, and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. Who is it in Psalm 78 who has made a table for them in the wilderness? Who is it in Psalm 78 that has fulfilled his covenant promises to sustain and provide for his people? It is Yahweh who has done this. The psalmist uses repeatedly God's covenant name, the Lord, Yahweh. Who does Mark intend for us to recognize here in Mark chapter 6 as the one who has set a table in the midst of the wilderness? It is Yahweh, clothed in human flesh. It is Yahweh, the second person of the Trinity, incarnate, taking on the form of a servant. Jesus is God. Jesus is Yahweh. He can be trusted not only to care for and to provide for his people, but like Yahweh in the desert, Jesus can be depended upon to keep covenant, to fulfill his promises. Jesus can be trusted to be faithful. He is the faithful one. He is the greater Moses. He is the God of Moses. Twelve apostles corresponding to the twelve tribes of Israel experience there in this desolate place the covenant promises of Yahweh. Brothers and sisters, may we be encouraged, those who are in Christ, this morning, will you behold your Savior? Look upon him this morning as your compassionate shepherd, the one who perhaps even through the valley of the shadow of death leads you patiently, carefully, tenderly, gently, skillfully, leads you beside still waters, leads you into good grass. He is also the miraculous provider. He, he is the one who 
whose hand is never slack, whose hand is never feeble, whose hand is never able or unable to provide for his people. Your divine servant king is also your miraculous provider. He is your creator. He is the one who made you. He is the one who can speak all things into existence. But he is also the covenant-keeping Yahweh. He is the one who's made a promise never to lose you, never to forsake you. Jesus declared that his father had given all of his people to him and that he would lose not even one. And for those of you here this morning who are not yet in Christ, Do not walk away this morning thinking, well, I've heard a good story, I've heard a good sermon about a good teacher who's done a lot of wonderful things. I mean, frankly, that was the response of the crowd. Their their bellies were full. They were materially satisfied, momentarily satisfied. But many of them went away only to get hungry again because they did not believe. They did not place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They did not look to him and believe that he actually is their great shepherd. He did not look to him and say he actually is the miraculous provider. They did not look to him and say he he is, in fact, the divine creator. They did not look to him and say he actually is the covenant keeping God of both the Old and the New Testament. Will you be reconciled to him today? Will you put your faith in such a one? Will you behold his words and works and do not walk away thinking, this is a mighty man. That is true, but he's not only that. He's God. and He's the God with whom you have to do. Young people, Look upon this with an urgency. Look look upon this picture of the Lord Jesus Christ with, with an urgency that as you behold who he really is in the scriptures, you must come to terms with that. You must believe in him as he is offered to you, not as you might imagine him to be in your own mind. We place your faith in him and trust that he is able and willing to save you to the uttermost. To cleanse you of your sin, to forgive you, to pardon you, and to fill you with his own righteousness instead of your own filthy rags. And to preserve you as the covenant-keeping God until your own death or until he returns. May the Lord give us grace to hear and to believe what the Lord has spoken to us today. Amen. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we thank you that that you have revealed to us your Son, 
in his glory and honor and power, in his compassion for sinners, in his ability to provide for us, in his ability to make all things new, in his faithfulness, his loving kindness, to keep covenant with us, a covenant that he struck with his own blood. Grant to us the grace to persevere in believing who he is and what he has done. Holy Spirit, will you help us to fix our, our mind, our attention upon the words and the works of our Lord Jesus Christ. To sanctify him as holy in our hearts, always ready to give a defense to the hope and the faith that is within us. We ask this in his name.